Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 127. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. And hey, everybody, welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 127 you're listening to. My guest today is Mr. Craig Schumacher. Yes, Mr. Craig Schumacher, who is based out of Tucson, Arizona. He is known for his studio down there, known as Wave Lab. And you might recognize his name because he's been working with bands like Calexico, one of my favorite bands. Devochka, Nico Case, Giant Sand, the Jayhawks, Friends of Dean Martinez, and Amos Lee. He's been doing that for quite some time. His whole concept, the Wave Lab Studios concept, is essentially an open room philosophy of recording where there's no actual separation between control room and live room. And if you listen to his recordings that he's done with Calexico specifically, I know that because I'm a Calexico fan and I buy Calexico records you will find his sense of space and the way he does things is incredible. So I'm not only a friend, but I'm a big fan of his work. And when I first met him many years ago, approximately 15, 16 years ago, I was thoroughly blown away about how he does things. And uh, while I appreciate the way he does things, of course, I'm not going to try to emulate him because there is only one Craig Schumacher. So Craig is also known for his work with the Tape Op Conference and its successor, the Potluck Audio Conference, which we have talked about extensively on Working Class Audio. It's where a lot of friendships that I have to this day were forged. And Craig and I met on the first Tape Op Conference, and we have been friends ever since. So I'm very excited to have him on the show. And he came through uh, Northern California. He came through to stay with us at the house, and he was on his way up to Panorama Studio to record the new Calexico record. So very excited about that. So yeah, Craig Schumacher coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Last episode, I got into a whole thing where I was talking about, you know, educating yourself and spending the time, money, and effort to just enrich your skills, however you do it in whatever part of the recording world you are in, Uh, whether it's going to conferences or watching videos or, you know, reading books or magazines or listening to podcasts, whatever. This is not a sales pitch by any stretch. Online learning is really powerful. And you can do it through so many different ways. In my particular case, mixed with the masters, they have a subscription-based thing. Pure Mix has a subscription-based thing. Warren Hewitt, our friend Warren Hewitt, he's also got a thing going. There's many different ones. And I recently, just to tell you of my experience, have subscribed to the Mix with the Masters thing primarily to get into the Chad Blake videos. Many of you who listen to the show know I'm a huge Chad Blake fan. I initially started out with watching the Chad Blake videos. Then I went on to watch the Ed Cherney videos and then the Andrew Sheps videos. And then I see Andrew, of course, is doing uh, something for Pure Mix recently with Green Day. And I see our friend Brad Wood, of course, is doing something on Warren Hewitt's Mix Academy or or, um, Produce Like a Pro Academy, I should say. All these things are super fantastic, in my opinion, 
and they're really well done and you can learn a lot. And I got to say that after spending a considerable amount of time binge watching some of these videos from a lot of these folks, you know, you start to, if you listen to it in your environment, you can hear what they're doing and you can actually hear if you haven't heard before what a quality mix sounds like in your environment and you're struggling. This is really, I think a really great thing that's out there. And of course there's I'm just naming those three. There's a bunch of stuff out there and I don't want to leave anybody out, but that's what's happening. On that topic, our friend Steve Jenowick, who works with Al Schmidt, who's also on the Mix with the Masters thing, Steve sent me a great note to say, hey man, I know you're a fan of Chad Blake's. You know he's coming with Mix with the Masters. So I jumped in and I applied and I got in. So I'm going uh, September, uh, like the 20th or something like that. So I will report back my experience and I'm, I'm really excited. It's a chunk of dough. There's no doubt about it, but I think what I came to the conclusion of is that what I do here, and I think a lot of you feel the same way about, about your recording profession, it means a lot to me. And I thought, you know what? I've spent money on silly things over the years that have added up to well beyond the price of mix with the masters. So I figured I'm going to do it. I'm not charging it. I've got the cash saved up, so I'm going to do it. I look forward to it. I look forward to uh, bringing to you my experience with it. I'm, you know, so excited. I think it's a once in a lifetime chance to do this. I don't think I'll ever do it again. So uh, there it is. What else was I going to tell you? Oh, I wanted to say a special thank you. I just moved the coffee mug to the side and was trying to think, what am I trying to remember here? Oh, right. I want to just say a thanks to uh, WCA fan Pete Droge for sending me a, a coffee mug and coffee, the Droge Summers Blend, and uh, many CDs. So, Pete, if you're listening, thanks for that. I can't say for sure. I can't tell you in detail, but Pete's going to have something cool coming out soon. So I'll keep it hush-hush for now, but stay tuned because... He's doing something. He's working on something cool that I, I'm excited about for him and for all of us. Uh, what else? Oh, I know what else. I was talking about NAM, Summer NAM in Nashville, and I got an email from one of our listeners asking, hey, where do I pick up tickets for that? I feel bad. I, fe- I failed to mention that NAM is not open to the general public. You got to kind of go through a dealer, a manufacturer, somebody who's associated with NAM. So, I apologize. I didn't mean to like, you know, wet everybody's whistle to think, Hey, I'm going to go down to Nashville. So anyways, if you know, if you have a connection, great. If you don't, no big deal. You know, there's all kinds of reports and I'll do a little bit of reporting back. It won't be completely extensive, but you'll at least get a sense of, of, of what happened. I want to make sure that you do know that our friends over at Universal Audio are running an Apollo Rack Dream Studio promo where you can get up up to $3,500 in plugins free from Studer, AKG, and many more. That offer ends on June 30th. If you go to uaudio.com and scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page, you can click on the Apollo Rack Dream Studio banner. They'll tell you all about that and the combinations and all the different things that you can get. There's different levels of packages. So if you plan on buying an Apollo anytime soon, I highly suggest you do not ignore this because you want to get those free plugins. It's a good deal. So uh, yeah, uaudio.com. So if you have uh, questions or comments, feel free to reach out, send an email to matt at workingclassaudio.com. Maybe those are guest suggestions or just, you know, general comments or critiques or whatever. 
reach out, feel free. Sometimes I respond, sometimes I don't. And if you want to continue the discussion uh, further, uh, I would encourage you to head on over to gearsluts.com and check out the uh, new section that Working Class Audio sponsors called Audio Life. And that's, as I've described in previous episodes, it's kind of like a, a foreign version of what we talk about on Working Class Audio. So, you know, there's life hacks and career, work, work-life balance, health stuff, all personal stuff. So it's kind of a continuation of some of these topics and discussions. And uh, yeah, I would encourage you to head on over there and check that out. Let's get on with it. Let's talk to our friend, our dear friend, Craig Schumacher, here in my living room, sitting on couches, me drinking copious amounts of coffee. So here it is, Craig Schumacher, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Craig. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. The original Tape Op conference that took place in Sacramento in what year? That would have been 2002. So I've known you for 15 years. I actually hatched the idea that South by Southwest in 2001, and I actually talked to John about starting the conference on September 10th. So the next day was 9-11. I remember that. Tape Op started the next day I flew home was 9-11. Oh, and the whole world pulled back and everyone stopped doing conferences and we went forward and still did Sacramento. For me, that was a... That was important because I was still, I mean, that was 15 years ago and, you know, I had been in it since 94, but definitely still learning and mm -hmm. still getting, getting it together. And that was an awakening moment for me, very eye-opening. Uh, it introduced me to you. I subsequently remember vividly saying, Hey, I'd like to come out and plan the next conference with you. Do a little, you know, jibber jabber back and forth about it. And you said, yeah, come out to Tucson. So I came out to Tucson. I hung out at a previous incarnation of Wave Lab Studios. The one on Peddington. And uh, I just remember you uh, playing me some stuff and me being absolutely in shock at how, well, number one, how good it sounded. And it just introduced me to a different way of presenting music in the recorded format in which, you know, we're, we all have our influences. Mm -hmm. I would say that you have influenced me in that way because of that moment of hearing those. I think you played me a record by the band, the Sadies at the time. Oh yeah. Through Actually, some, I just saw them coming through town. It was kind of funny. We were just talking about that. Some, you, you had some big old clips speakers and yeah. sat back. You said, listen to this. I listened to it. I was like, oh man. Yeah. That was funny because that Sadies record, actually, I didn't do all that record. I did some of the songs and you know, for sure, they were in a different place because they'd done a lot of work at some other studios. And when I was mixing it, Dallas was pacing behind me, like incessantly, like expecting, you know, trying to say, you know, oh, you know, can I? And I would go, no. And he said, can I? No. And then finally I got done and I said, I turned to him, I said, okay, give me your comments. And he goes, I don't have any. I was like, why not? You know, what were you going to do? Were you going to tell me the vocal wasn't right like an hour ago? I knew that. Why do you think I kept mixing? You know, I don't need you to tell me. I don't, we're, I'm working on things. I don't need you distracting me because your brain's somewhere else. Right. So my biggest thing about mixing is I don't want someone in the room with me for that reason because I stop listening with my ears and I start listening with their ears. And that's the fatal flaw of mixing attended, right? Yeah. The minute the drummer walks into the room, I stop listening to what I'm working on and immediately think, oh, the kick drum isn't right. Because I feel the projection of them, you know, like obsessing over their drum sounds, even though we're not on that anymore. And it maybe doesn't matter. Right. So when you I, stop being you. You stop being you. You turn your you turn your ears off and you try to listen to the other person because they're behind you for one, which is horrible. Yeah. Right. And you're you're hunkered down, you know, in front of your Pro Tools screen or your monitors. You're in that, you know, hunkered down, head down position. And someone's behind you. If they're on their phone and they're quiet, maybe I don't care. But, you know, you catch it like a little 
little noise, a little sigh, a little body motion. You know what I mean? And you're like, oh, something's up. And if you have the vocalist in the room and you solo the vocal, oh, it's just agonizing. That's just them. mean. I, I tell people straight up, I'm going to work on the vocals now. You need to leave. <laughs> I just tell them. And, you know, I've come up with a really good way to sort of, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I'm not saying it's a sugarcoating or it's actual BS. And obviously talking about the conference and the experience we had listening to a lot of people we admire, like, you know, who are now unfortunately passed, like Alan Toussaint and Cosimo and, you know, people had this wealth of experience. And I just remember those panels and asking these sensitive questions about dealing with people and the responses from, you know, people you look up to and assimilating all that information and thinking about the impact of what you do in the studio and how easy it is to get in front of it and do something wrong, be just, and you don't even know it, you know what I mean? Like an arrogant statement that you make like, well, I, I'll take care of that later. You know, you just, you can get kind of gruff and, and rough with people because you're in your own little zone, right? Mm -hmm. So for that reason, I really don't want people around me. You know, I want to go through my mood swings on my own. You don't need to see them, right? You don't need to see me when I'm frustrated over the phase problems of your project. You don't need to see that. That an artist who sent me that project to mix doesn't need to know that I'm silently just going, oh, Mike, this. You know what I mean? You know, you've been there. You start mm -hmm. soloing tracks and you're like, what What am I working with? When you start cursing and, and, you know, criticizing the project, like, who the hell recorded right. this? So then that's so unproductive. And I'm trying to stop that behavior because <laughs> it's just too easy, right? It's just easy to bash somebody else who did the work upstream if you didn't do the work. Right. So that also makes me keenly sensitive to work that leaves WaveLab. I don't want bash. Right. So therefore the etiquette of recording and proper recording is something that, you know, I want to make sure that we do. So someone isn't, I can't feel my ears burning and someone's opening up this file and go, what the hell did those guys do? Right. Right. You know, and, and that's going to happen if it's somebody who's a different genre and I send them a bunch of tape tracks, they're going to hate it. It's full of hiss. They won't know what to, oh, I got to pull the isotope out. This guy and his analog. Ah. Uh, take me back to the point at which you actually got into recording for real. In the, was that the 80s, right? I started out at my house. I was a musician, wanting to be a musician, wanting to be in a band. I just had that rock star desire through my 20s, you know. And, and then, you know, I, child of the 70s going to the 80s, that model still existed, right? You know, you could put a garage band together and go play clubs. And, you know, maybe an AR guy would find you. And that brass ring was still out there, right? This whole idea of, like, you can make it, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was my main passion. But I had to get equipment because I was the singer. So... You know, I kind of dabbled in PAs and, and you know, not much recording, but it was a Roland JX3P that started me down this road. I went into a music store and I put a pair of headphones on and I listened to the new digital synthesizer thing, this Roland JX3P. So, so the keyboard. You know, the keyboard. And I was just, I was astounded at the sounds. I was like, oh, wow, this thing's amazing, you know? So I, I bought it. Next thing you know, I'm in a music store. And I'm like, whoa, it has this thing called MIDI. What can I do with this thing called MIDI? Oh, I can record it. So I got the, like the first roll in like FS step sequencer, like the two super clunky, like one note at a time. And you had to write the rests. And like, so I started programming MIDI in its infancy. And that led me to the multi timbral boxes and MIDI switching. And I was a total MIDI idiot, like completely immersed. I built a home studio and I had, you know, CZ 101 and Kurtzwill stuff and Kawhi stuff. I never did the Yamaha thing for some reason. It was like, you know, you went DX7 or you kind of went Roland. And I went Roland because, you know, the DX was its own animal and that was its own learning curve. So I kind of didn't do the DX side. I didn't, I didn't actually like the sound of it that much either. I really felt there was a lot of cheesy DX stuff getting on tracks. 
Remember the horrible road oh, sound yeah. that was replacing real roads? You know, it was the 80s, right? Right. So we're all embracing these new sounds. At the same time, we're kind of like, eh. I had the hair. I was in a band. It was kind of new wave, but then it kind of became punky, you know? So I had moved into this world of MIDI, right? Production. Right. And ultimately, I got frustrated because I couldn't put myself on it. I'm like, well, what if I want to sing to this music I wrote? I can't sing into this thing called MIDI. It's just so much note data. So I marched down to the local music store, Rainbow Guitars. Harvey Maltz, thank you very much to this day. I'm always grateful to you because he came to me and I said, what do I do? And at the time, your choices were four-track cassette. Akai made that weird like six-track thing. Remember that all-in-one like smoky box that had like the quarter-inch tape that Akai made that was an all-in-one standalone unit? But it was 12-track. It was 12-track. And it was on a cartridge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That all-in-one thing. Sure. And I think Tascam had a similar one that used a reel-to-reel actually that was like an eight-track that had like a little reel-to-reel in it. Yeah. And the, th- uh, the 388, yeah. I think? So Tascam had a thing like that. God, that always keeps coming up on the show. That particular That's actually model. a great box. Yeah. But I bought the 32, the half-inch 8-track. Okay. And I bought a Tascam 8-channel board. Immediately, I discovered that you need more channels than you have tracks to do anything. So I went back to Rainbow and said, 8's not enough, and I got a 12. So I went home with a 12-channel Tascam 12 board. 12-channel board. 12-channel board, eight all, track, all unbalanced, half-inch. you know, RCA connections. I was using a Onkyo cassette deck to mix to. Awesome. I didn't even know how to thread the tape right. I wasn't storing it tails out. I don't even think I threaded it properly for like the first year. Yeah. It worked, but I don't think I was doing it right. (laughs) I don't remember. But when I met Randy, my first partner, and he had the 8-track, it was kind of eye-opening. And I learned about tails out and all the things I was doing wrong. Right. But back then, it was like, well, what did you do? You had to get... A sync pop. Well, what was your sync pop? Well, we had FSK and it was really clunky. And if it broke out, you had to go back and start over. And then when Smart FSK came along, we were like, wow, this is amazing. You mean it can chase and lock? The MIDI chasing the, MIDI the chased tape. and lock with yeah, Smart yeah. FSK. And then MIDI time code. Now it's just taken for granted, right? Right. I mean, these, I just crack up with, you know, my students all like upset. I'm like, you got MIDI now on a USB cable. This is ridiculous now. It's so easy. <laughs> like anything will clock to anything if you know what you're doing. It's just drivers now. Like it's right. And the amazing thing to me about that is I did this in the mid '80s, and that protocol is still robust and is actually still working and hasn't changed. So if you think about MIDI, it's an that in itself is a musical revolution because that is set right a huge thing. Everybody agreed on a standard, and it still works. Yeah. In the audio industry, that's a big deal. How did the whole studio thing grow? Well, I started in my garage and. You know, I started writing and composing and I had some friends coming over and we would start actually playing. Like we were, we went from, you know, quietly doing compositions kind of on headphones. And then next thing you know, I was like, well, here's a drum kit in the room. And we were actually starting to rock out. And my neighbor just freaked and came and banged on my door and was like, couldn't take it anymore. Right. Because I made the fatal flaw of, of building a quote unquote rehearsal or recording studio or what I wanted to call it a soundproof room that whole thing soundproof room no such thing and I had to put a swamp cooler on the side of it which was just a giant opening so the swamp cooler was a speaker which was pointed at my neighbor's bedroom wall (laughs) so basically his bedroom wall was getting all the low end and all the sound and you know I would just I'll never forget that day the guy banged on the door and I rolled the door open and he looked like Vincent D'Onofrio from uh from Full Metal Jacket. Like he's just there with his eyes rolled up and the whites of his eyes are showing and he just has this look. And he said, this is exactly what my neighbor said. He said, enough is enough. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, okay, 
got your message loud and clear. So my friend at the time, I was mentioned earlier, I was in plumbing and I ran this company and, you know, I was really involved in construction in Tucson. And my friend, Mark Berman had bought this huge building that they were going to move their plumbing supply house to. And we were really good friends. And I went to him and I said, Hey, I, I need another space. And I know you just bought this building. So he showed me this massive old turn of the century warehouse complex in downtown Tucson. That was our original ice house where, you know, they brought all the ice in for refrigeration and storage. Yeah. So all concrete, amazing. You know, there's a lot of them actually here along the railroad tracks out here in the West. Yeah. These, there's one, you know, and they now have been turned to like Denver back in the eighties. They were turning one into a brew pub, blah, blah, blah. You know, a lot of them have been repurposed. Well, this particular building, he took me around and showed me all these things, but then he showed me this developed, later developed part of it that was part of this warehouse complex that was probably built before the war. But then, you know, because it was the war, war during the war, World War II, for World, sure. Okay, World War II. Not one, two, because things like there was aluminum wiring in it. There was a lot of stuff that said depression or wartime because right. of material choices. Okay. You know, like you could see the, the roll, like the brick was all secondhand. It was like repurposed. It was a very repurposed building. You were able to, it was like carbon dating it with the, based on the materials used. Um, real, real rough sawn, real dimensional two by fours in, right. was in the ceiling. Okay. Like real rough sawn, might even have been redwood, dude. It was serious lumber. Okay. So when I got the building and Mark showed me the building, it was completely ragged. I mean, it was a mess. The roof was like plaster falling off the walls. The roof leaked. Homeless people have been living there. The glass was broken. It smelled like urine. It was disgusting. Right. But it was also like 5,000 square feet <laughs> with high ceilings. And okay. three rooms already that had like office, like door windows and doors that looked through each other. Okay. And I wanted to make it a club because at the time I was still thinking about live music and being in a band. Oh, you weren't thinking studio? Not at all. Oh. I wanted to be a club because there was no venues for, I was frustrated by the lack of venues for bands of my ilk in Tucson. Okay. So I had this kind of idea of like, oh, it'll be all ages and, you know, it'll be so cool and all this. But you didn't do that. Well, no, because I tried to do it legitimately. And I went to the city of Tucson to get a certificate of occupancy. It was going to be impossible. It's going to cost me a fortune. Right. They're like, oh, you got to get this parking and then you got to put in flower beds and da, 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 da. And I was like, uh, you know, that's, I don't know about this, you know, like the liability, the insurance. My first partner, Randy McReynolds, who was a local guru for all of us he was like the guy for live sound and he was the guy people recorded with and i knew him from playing in bands because he oftentimes was our front of house guy and everybody knew randy he was like the go-to guy in tucson to help bands huh so okay. he was actually out on the road with a local band that was called the sidewinders that had been signed to rca this is like the mid 80s when rca went on that splash and signed college bands remember college rock oh sure everybody got signed for a little bit this is before grunge right and a side note on that, by the way, at that time, their A&R person actually told that band that they should not wear flannel shirts and jeans because no one will ever watch a band that dresses like that. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 80s, right? So the Sidewinders are out with Randy, and I think they were touring with like Charlie Sexton oh, yeah. when he was doing the Archangels. Yeah, And right. they were the opening band. So Randy was back in between tours, and he came down to see me. And he walked into that building and the first thing out of his mouth was, it's a recording studio. And I went, huh, simultaneously. It's all serendipity, right? My job at my company was, this is the 80s, the savings and loans crisis, the economy's getting really bad and our company is wild. You, you haven't said what your job was. Oh, I worked for a plumbing contractor. Okay. I ran an entire company. I had 150 employees underneath me. 
full office with three secretaries, uh, accountant, two backhoes, full-time shop mechanic, uh, 27 trucks in the field with two men. High, 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 high stress job. Yeah. Like, but you know, I was the captain of industry. I mean, I was, everybody in Tucson knew me from construction. We, we were the largest residential home craft home contractor in Tucson. My company at the time, it was every day our plumbers were expected to put 15 houses in the ground. That was a slow week, slow wow. day. Okay. 15. Yeah. Oh no. Millions of dollars of inventory. It's massive okay. company. Music and my studio were kind of my escape from this pressure job. And I was throwing my energy post-work into this and, you know, my money that I was making, and I was making good money and, you know, just building this thing. So that summer, this would have been 89, every day I went and worked on this building. And when Randy showed up and he saw the fruits of my labor and he said it was a recording studio that was in the fall. And right about that time, there was a local store and this is kind of important in the story that was a Sid Superstore. So it was one of those early pre-big box stores that, you know, the, that wouldn't have been Best Buy. It would have been... Crazy Eddie's. Yeah, it was like that, right? Like, and, and that's one of those, the chain came along and crushed that went bankrupt, whatever that one was. I forgot, but there's been so many. Right. But anyway, so they were going down... Circuit to, City. Circuit City. Thank there you. There we go. Circuit City was big boxing Tucson. So, you know, he went down. So they were having an auction. And I went up there thinking I was going to purchase like cables, right? Because they had audio and video and washers and dryers. They, were, they had everything, TVs and everything. So I went up there thinking I'll buy wires and cable. Instead, I walked in and I realized everything was unbalanced. So that was no good. But they had on a lot, all of these plywood carpeted boxes they had built to put the washers and dryers up in the air and all the refrigerators off the floor. So they were pre-made risers and they were like four by two by three foot high and four by two by six inches high. And there was some like eight by twelves that were eight, like drum risers that you could put two together and have an awesome drum riser. So I basically got a flatbed truck worth of carpeted boxes that were really solid. And I drove into the warehouse because we had a roll-up door that I replaced the whole glass thing with a roll-up door. You could drive into Wave Lab in the early days. It was called 7 and 7. That was one of our hooks. In fact, when I met Hal Gelb for the first time, he actually drove into the studio and he told Randy, just throw the mic in the car. I want to perform in my car. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that was, that's kind of legendary. Like, you know, Hal told everyone, there's a studio in Tucson. You can just drive in and they record you in your car. Actually, I still think that's a good idea. Anybody out there steals it, you can have it. But I think a drive-in studio is still a great idea. But what'd you do with these boxes? I left them and went home. The next day is a Sunday. I go back down to the studio. I walk in the door. Randy has taken the one room that was the most trashed room of the three rooms and taken all these boxes and lined the trashed back wall and made an angular wall. He's taken a bunch and set them down like tables. He's taken others and flipped them on their back and a tape deck's laying inside one. The board's laying on another one. He's made a couch out of another one. He's put the other ones up as speaker risers. And the whole studio is built with these things as modular pieces for furniture. And I walk in and there's a band right there set up and there's like some 57s and a drum kit in this band. And he goes, I go, what's going on? He goes, we're a recording studio. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? What do we charge? And he goes, $15 an hour. And I said, okay. And we ran almost every band in Tucson through there at $15 an hour and a half inch A-track. And that's who I mentored under. Craig Schumacher here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You know, this is generally the point where we always do the sponsor break with Audio Technica. 
and we take a break from the show. This is kind of where the one show where these two items merge really effortlessly because when Craig was here doing the interview, he came in, he was checking out my studio and he saw that I had an audio technica 4047 up on the stand, up on a up on a mic stand ready to go for uh, you know, various overdubs that might occur. And Craig said it too. He said, "Oh, man, I love the AT4047. That is just one hell of a mic." And I couldn't agree more. And so, you know, this is like I said, this is where we're going to merge the two, the sponsor break with the interview. Uh, so long story short, Craig was like, oh, you know what? You should let me take that up to uh, record Calexico because I didn't bring mine with me. And I don't know if they have one at the studio. So, of course, he texts, finds out, no, in fact, they don't. So he was like, yeah, you should let me take that with me. And we'll just we'll we'll tell the AT folks about it. And uh, I'm sure they won't mind. So <laughs> Craig took my 4047 that AT had lent me. So, um, yeah. I'm going to have to get that back or get uh, AT to send me a new one because it's just such a super versatile mic, super fantastic for a, a million different applications. And it's not that expensive, really. I think it's like under $700 or something like that. Anyways, look online. If you want to buy one, check it out, see if you can get a good price. That's it. It's That's that's my pitch for the AT4047. So let's get back to Craig, the AT4047 taker, Craig, and uh, let's talk talk some more. Craig Schumacher here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Now, Randy was amazing because his approach to 8-track recording was he put all the low-end rhythm stuff on track one. So bass and kick and toms were on track one. The snare and cymbals were on track two. Right. And that was his rhythm section on two tracks, bass and drums, two tracks. Then he had six tracks for production. He never did any bouncing. He never did any reductions. He just used that A-track. And he was really good at telling you no because you just don't have the track. So you needed to focus on, you know, what was important. And we were cheap and it sounded great. And he had a great ear and, you know, he had the compression and the mics and stuff. But it was my tape machine because his tape machine had more hours on it. It was his Kelsey board. They were my JBL monitors. It was mostly his mics, but I brought all my MIDI stuff down and we had a keyboards and I bought an organ and, you know, we started, you know, putting more stuff in. Where did the name WaveLab come Wave from? WaveLab came when Randy and I parted ways and I needed to rebrand the studio because 7 and 7 had a really big brand and I didn't want to continue with 7 and 7. So the studio was, was called 7 it was, and it 7. It was his, 7 and 7 was his studio. Okay. It was his brand. Parting ways, that that happens. Yeah, it was a big deal. But let, prior to that, what did you what did you learn from him that you still think about to this day? Oh, well, yeah, he mentored me for sure. You know, I would come in at the time now, you got to remember that my, my really good job that was a salaried job where I had a company car and I wore nice clothes is gone. So I'm back out in the field, in the trenches, in the summer sun, digging ditches and gluing together plastic pipe. Okay. And every place I go to work is somebody who I hired or fired in the past. Right. So karma's a bitch right now, dude. I am dying. Like everywhere I go to work is somebody who I probably had fired. Because when Pima Plumbing was going down, my boss used to come to me and say, you gotta get rid of seven people by Friday or we're sunk. I'm like, John, it's the week before Christmas. I don't care. Let me tell you something. When you get into a position of responsibility and authority, hiring is fun. Firing sucks. Yeah. And I did a lot of it. It was hard. So now I'm out in the field and I come in from, you know, 
being out there sweaty and hot and I'd walk into our studio and it's swamp cooled and we had a beer machine at the time. We actually had a machine that dispensed cheap beer. <laughs> I think we made more money on the cheap beer dispenser than we did on some of the sessions and recordings. We had some rooms I framed up for rehearsal spaces. I was trying to maximize the square footage because all the square footage that the studio only took half of it. And I had this whole like back room and this other area that I could develop and I was going to work on developing. The landlord was letting me just have free run over stuff I didn't even pay rent for just because I had access to it. So it was just this whole period of, you know, figuring that out. And when Randy and I parted ways, I had a second partner show up who I bought into a young guy who'd come to Tucson and he was also a MIDI person and he and I got along much better. So I thought, oh, this is a much better partner for me than, you know, Randy and I aren't getting along. He doesn't, and he's gotten kind of more crusty and he's kind of burning out and he doesn't really want to do this anymore. And we kind of hit a little impasse. And I realized that, you know, it didn't make sense to me that I was out every day killing myself. And yet, you know, hey, I want to be the guy sitting inside in the swamp pool and drinking a beer, hanging out, listening to music. You know, I think it's really important because we have people who listen all over the world and the mention of swamp coolers growing up in New Mexico. I know what it is. Okay. But so, so lay it out. Real swamp simple. cooler is a metal box you put on the roof of your building that has Aspen pads that you trickle water down through and you have an internal fan. That's a basically like a squirrel cage fan that pulls hot air through moist pads and will drop the temperature by 20 degrees. And the downside is, is it puts humidity in everything. It puts, yeah. So if you got a, if it's your home, if you got a box of cereal, you left open, it's going to, it's going to get damp. Oh, your carpet. It's brutal. And as soon as rainy season comes, humidity goes up. It doesn't work. Right. So it only really works well from like, you know, April to mid June. So you don't have any control. Like it's at night you freeze to death because you can't temper regulate it. I mean, it's, but it's cheaper oh, than the, than other so types cheap. of cooling. Oh, yeah, it's crazy cheap. Okay, so. They're still ubiquitous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All over the West. Yeah. So, so okay, that's. So, Swamp Cool Studio. Swamp Cooling, that's Yeah, Swamp Cool Studio. But it was a master cool, which is like a big fancy one that's supposed to work better. Yeah, it's, tell some of that in August, you know. Right. So, <laughs> um, high ceiling, which didn't help either. As a matter of fact, it's good you bring that up because obviously mechanical and recording studios is a big thing people obsess over right? The noise of your unit. Sure. How do you deal with it? And I'm here to tell you my entire recording career, the only way I've ever dealt with is shut it off and record till you can't take it and then turn it back on. Right. That's the only way. I can't afford to put in an air conditioner system with all the bells and whistles where the air just falls into the room. That's so expensive to most people, right? Just think about that investment alone, the tonnage, the electrical. It's like right away to record, like, oh, you can't record because you got an air handler. It's bullshit, huh? right? Get up, hit the thermostat, shut the thing off, sweat for a while. Remember Cosimo, what he said about the ice down in J&M? Remember when he was talking about doing J&M and it was in the avocado uh, warehouse that was the cork lined warehouse. And I'll never forget this that one of the, you know, tape op kids, of course, was like, What'd you do about the fan noise? Because he said, We used to put a bucket of tub of ice and blow air across the ice to cool the room. And his response was so funny. He said, Well, if we were doing horns, we didn't care. Because <laughs> so think about that. If we were doing horns, we didn't care. Why wouldn't they have cared? The horns are louder than the fans. Right. Who cares? We get so hung up on stuff that doesn't matter. We forgot about masking. We forgot about how you don't hear things when you turn them down. We think that auto-tuning solves problems. So what you should do with someone who can't sing is turn it up louder and tune it and make me really hate them. Whatever happened to turn it down and add some reverb? Yeah, mask it. 
worked great. So <laughs> let me pull you back. So that's yeah, right. I get carried away. I know we went and we. Sorry, guys. This is going to be tangential. No, no, it's cool because we actually described what Swamp Cool is <laughs> in yeah. an audio podcast. Yeah. All right. Well, it's important because you know if someone's sitting out there right now looking to build a studio and they're looking at a set of prints and they are like, I can't get started because you need to reevaluate that. If you've got the money, great, go for it. Yeah. You know, you got the money, but and you can do it economical right, go ways. for it. Yeah. But if you don't and you've got a nice building and it might work for you, but you're like, oh, I'm not sure because I'm hung up on this. Hey, make sure it's got the right power. That's more important. You can always later on improve the heating and cooling yeah. if it's got the right power. Sure. And of course, with these ductless- uh, Oh yeah, those things know, are great. Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi Mr. Mr. Great. Slam. Yeah, those are great. Oh, jeez. You know, I want to put one in my back room. But again, they're not cheap. It's not, it sounds simple, but it's. But I mean, it's like about, you know, even if you put the full heating and cooling package in a Mitsubishi Mr. Slim thing, I think it's like four or 5,000 with installation. You can get it cheap if you buy it in Mexico. Well, that's another top. Anyhow. Um, yeah, I know I've thought about those, but again, that's still not cheap if you're starting out. So y- your original partner, you you parted ways, you created, you rebranded. I rebranded as Wave Lab with a second partner. I had to basically then be known to Tucson because I was under the shadow of him. Did you move out of the building? No, I'm Randy? still in that building. And so Randy left. Randy, Randy left. And he actually went to work for another studio for a while. And, you know, we had some animosity, but it was over time. It, it was fine. Yeah. I actually ended up giving him like the old console when I got my Soundcraft, And we, you know, I would still go to him when I was working and bring, he was, and bring my mixes down and, and pick it because I always loved his mixes. They were great. And I was always fascinated by his dynamics and his mixes. He would get great dynamics and I would do my mixes and I would just go see him. And I'd say, Randy, can I, and he was really nice to me. Even after we parted ways, he, he, he put up with me and me learning. So my second partner and I, we started a little media business too, because that was in the nineties and you know, the whole digital revolution was starting to happen. Right. So during that time, I got the first sound designer two card and a quadra 650. And so I was the first studio in town with an actual digital setup, but well, important thing to know in this story is that Randy pushed me into purchasing a two-inch 16-track and not a 24-track. So when we moved up from the 8-track and we went to buy a tape deck together, we went to make this investment. This is back when, you know, no internet, none of this stuff. We went through like a broker in Boston. Right. And he put this package together for us. And we bought a two-inch 16-track, a Sony DAT machine, and two 421s. I think we spent $10,000. And that was a big deal for us. You know, two 421s. Ooh, the 421s. That machine. That machine. But the thing that's important about that, the 16 track, is that is what I got, I hung on to. And that was part of the fight. Was you like, still have that today. So I hung on to that. That yeah. was the fight. Like, why we parted ways. It was the fight over the tape deck. So I asserted myself in a bad way. And because I, I was like, no, 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 it's my loan. I'm not. I'm hanging on to this machine. I stuck my neck out for this money. I'm responsible for it. I'm, I'm keeping this. So that was really the sticking point. That machine was never in good shape. It needed a lot of work. I didn't know anything from back then. And, you know, whenever it break down, it was this huge panic and a huge investment. There's not good tech. It wasn't really reliable text that much in Tucson. They would come and they'd fix something, but they'd always throw a Band-Aid on it. They'd always tell you they're coming back. and never came back. I mean, I still have some of the same problems it's always had. Like from day one, my machine will not punch in on channel two without making a huge <laughs> and we can't fix it. So we just never, when people go, we punch drums, we go, no, no, you can't. Cause channel two will go. <laughs> and we're like, unless there's a break. <laughs> so we always put Why didn't you just buy a new machine eventually? Stubborn. Yeah. Okay. I can respect Super that. Super stubborn. I really love that MCI. Yeah. 
it's a 77 machine. I graduated that year. It's got all tantalum capacitors in the first 16 channels. So it's just wrong. <laughs> it has the bad IC chips. It's all just wrong, but it sounds great because it's special. You know what I mean? Like there's just something about it. Sure. It's not a studer. Well, it's not squeaky clean. It doesn't behave. It's a little, it's a little cantankerous. It, it, you have to work it. So let me, let me dive in because selfishly as a Calexico fan, when did your relationship with Calexico enter into the picture? And when did, at what point was that in the, in the history of wave lab? Well, I alluded to earlier with Randy was my first contact with giant sand. And at the time, Joey and Johnny were the rhythm section with how, so I had, they had just joined about the same. Was time. this early nineties? Yeah. My time frame with Randy was 89 to 93. Okay. My time frame taking over was 93 is when I became wave lab. Okay. So that 91, 92 period, I know how came in, did some stuff with them and I kind of met them, but I didn't really get it. Okay. You know, so later I was establishing my own identity, but it wasn't, you know, it was a little fits and starts. I was working with some local vanity projects and cutting my teeth. Well, Tucson, like a lot of places, you have your entertainment, you know, liberal entertainment paper. Ours is called the weekly. So the weekly started a awards thing called the Tammies, Tucson area music, something. I don't remember. After the Bammies. After the Bay Area After the Bammies. Okay. So we stole the Bammies and called it the Tammies. Okay. And uh, my friend Jeb Schoonover, who was also working for the local, uh, starting the Rialto and worked also at the community radio station, was behind it. And Brad Singer of Zia Records funded a CD of all of the Tammy winners. Okay. So Jeb Schoonover approached me and said, we want to make this compilation CD but we have a really tight budget. Will you do every band for like 70 bucks a band? Okay. And I said, sure. And so I got to meet all these Tucson bands I wouldn't have had access to for $70 a band. So nobody got any special treatment. It was like, you know, in and out. And I put together this compilation. It was 1994. So I did the local reggae band. I did the local blues guy. I did the jazz guy. Very important lesson happened on one of those first sessions was working with Dean Armstrong, who was our local Sons of the Pioneers steakhouse guy. Like, you know, Sons of the Pioneers is very famous from Tucson. You know, no. the whole Western cowboy swing singing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You that... know, like Harmer Barbershop, but it's Cowboy Barbershop with like fiddles and stuff. It's yeah. Western swing. Okay. So there was this guy, Dean Armstrong, who played at this Silver Saddles or the steak, I forget the name, but a steakhouse in Tucson for like 50 years. Right. And these guys were like old school. So they were the legacy winners that year. Like the whole, like, you know, Dean, we're going to fake Dean Armstrong as our, you know, legacy Tucson outstanding musician for his, you know, all these years he's been here. So this other guy, Mike Abair, was kind of producing them for this song. Okay. So they came into Wave Lab to do their Tammy song, set their stuff up, played it once and started packing up. And I went, whoa, 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 what's going on? And that guy turned to me and he goes, you didn't record that? I was mortified, just mortified. Matt, I was like, my, I, my, my stomach, like my heart dropped, my stomach, I wanted to throw up. He was mad at me. Wow. I was goofing around with my multi-track and all my microphones. He hated me. So what happened? I asked them to please do it again. And I learned a valuable lesson that day. Always record, Kyle. <laughs> Always record. And Hal taught me that too. There were so many Giant Sands. You listen to those early Giant Sand records, you can hear that two inch being punched in always, everywhere. Always record, Kyle. Yeah, that's from Tenacious D, right? Always oh. record, Kyle. Okay. Always record. 
And with Pro Tools, it's just, I always tell my students all the time, you should never not be in record with Pro Tools. It's data. Who cares? Yeah. Terabytes are cheap. Just hit just that button. Just go and just start go. plugging stuff in. So the idea of the studio, the two-inch, and me stubbornly still saying on the two-inch while the, the digital revolution is happening. So my second partner, Jeff, actually came to me and said, we should sell that tape machine and buy ADATs. <laughs> and I said, and I remember this distinctly, I said, you know, Randy was super adamant about this 16 track being the best analog format. That's why we didn't get a 24. I'm not going to do it. I'm hanging on to this thing. So the Tammies got my foot in the door. I did it twice. I did it two years in a row. Okay. So I got my foot in the door. And a lot of those bands then came back to me and made records because they really enjoyed their experience with me for that one song. And they're like, wow, he's fast. He knows, you know, it's great. Good hang. Budget's great. So I, my friend, Stefan George, who I made, you know, bunches of records with, who passed away two years ago, unfortunately. Sam Taylor, our local blues guy. I did the, you know, most, everybody who I recorded in that Tammy's ended up making a full album with me. Okay. The next step that kind of happened in the background was Giant Sand out on the road and this guy, Bill Elm, who was their steel player and kind of their roadie guy or helping out was, you know, fledgling steel player. And when they were in hotel rooms hanging out, Joey and John and, and, and Bill would play like little standards like Shadow of Your Smile and stuff and basically being like a little lounge band. And so they were doing this little lounge thing and I'll get this a little wrong, but the way I understand it was Restless Records had a Christmas party in LA and they called themselves the Friends of Dean Martinez as a joke, little lounge band. And they were asked to play at this Restless Records party. And Jonathan Poneman saw him and wanted to sign him to Sub Pop. So Friends of Dean Martinez as a lounge band was being offered a Sub Pop deal prior to Sub Pop being what it is now. So Bill Elm came to me and said, this label Sub Pop wants us to make a record. I got $2,000, will you do it? And I said, yeah, but I want to be producer. So that's when I really immersed myself with John and Joe, where they were the rhythm section in Friends of Dean Martinez. And we made this really cool record called Shadow of Your Smile. But then, of course, along the way, you can't be friends with Dean Martinez because Dean Martin, friend, uh, Dean, we were friends with Dean Martin. I take that back. Dean Martin said no. So we changed it to Martinez. Originally, it was friends with Dean Martin. Of course, the lawyers popped up like, no. And Sub Pop was like, we're not going to fight those lawyers. Change the name. So friends with Dean Martinez is what it became. Oh, okay. So- the other aha moment out of that was when my relationship with Golden Mastering started because John Golden mastered that record. And I thought I had done a pretty good job, quote unquote, on this record. And then I got back to mastering and I was like, oh my God, what happened? This is amazing. <laughs> who, like, ma who made this record? Yeah, who made this record? <laughs> I was taking that thing around saying, listen, listen, I did this. Like I couldn't believe how good it sounded. Eye-opening. And that was that was John Golden. Master. John Golden. Did. Okay. Not his yeah. son. No. But that my relationship with Golden Mastering is from this day forward, they are my go-to mastering studio. I really don't want to use anybody else. I trust other don't sorry guys, my mastering friends out there. I love you all, but yeah, you know, it's you have you, a relationship it's with like someone. a good mechanic. It's when people say they want a wave lab record, I usually will say, then you need to master with golden mastering because they're the, the the final touch. They understand what I'm doing. Okay. I did a record in Belgium for Francois Brew in 2000. And I put this amazing bottom end on it. It was glorious on this song. It was beautiful. This guy in Brussels just chopped it all out. 
And I'm sure he was sitting there saying, that American didn't know what he was doing. I got to make it louder. Foink. Cut the low end out. Just ruined it. So I remember a lot of times back then that a lot of people, I remember Dan Stewart complaining about that, that he sent a record to Europe and the mastering ruined it. And I could never understand it. What did the mastering do that ruined your record? And then I came to understand. It was this whole like sacrificing the low end warmth for the high end spit and brightness and attack, which I get that's intelligibility and volume, but somewhere along the way that we know went too far, the loudness wars. And we kind of lost sight of, you know, Hey, well, how about some of the lower frequencies too? They, we did a lot to put those in there. Right. So my MO now is people will say, well, your mixes are super bassy. And I go, I know because I'm leaving room for JJ to carve some out, but still leave it. Okay. You know what I mean? So I'm leaving room like, and he knows that going in like, okay. And he'll say, I don't make the loudest records. And I'll tell people, yeah, they're not going to make you the loudest record, but it'll be beautiful. How did Friends of Dean Martinez turn into Calexico? Well, as usual, money gets in the way. That record was instrumental. So it was a licensing goldmine, right? Right. Instrumental tracks, swishy, boomy, all that stuff. The second record, Bill was flexing his muscles a little more as the guy who signed the contract. And... Tension started to arise over who was going to get writing on this new record. Because now everyone knew there was money to be had on royalties. And there was too many members of the band. And as we know with royalties, you can only get so many. And there's covers involved. So you're giving up royalties because you're doing covers already. So that pie was being fought over. So they split. They were fired in my studio with me sitting there. Very, very rough moment. The parting prize was the half-inch A-track that they had bought with the sub-pop money. And Bill was like, you guys can take the tape machine and kind of go do your own thing. So they did. They took the tape deck. They went to John's house in the barrio. They sat down and they made Spoke, their first record. Yeah. Which they put out on cassette. And I mixed it. They brought the A-track back to Wave Lab and I mixed it. And it was so cute. I'll just, I remember Joey at the time, like we were hand cutting the little orange things and he was printing them himself and he was, drawing on the cassettes and stuff. I mean, now in the indie world, that I don't even know what people would do to get their hands on one of those cassettes because they were all handmade by Joey. In the studio while we were mixing, he was making the tapes, like getting them all ready. It was great. And then we went to like Sound Factory who had tape duplicating or Roger or somebody locally who did tape duplicating. And I think he might have even done it locally. But then along came actually Sub Pop again, looking at that. And at the same time, Touch and Go slash Quarterstick. And Joey actually came to me and asked me, what did I think about, what do you think, you know, what, which way should I go? And I said, well, what's the pros and cons? And the pro, I think why they went with touch and go and quarter stick was when he said, they will give us complete artistic control. I said, you got to go with that label. Yeah, I mean, you can't argue with that. You got to go with that label. And the deal was great. And they gave him like, you know, after recoup 50%, plus they paid for all the merch. Okay. And they let them make tour-only CDs that they got to sell themselves. What was the next record that they made? Um, well, then we would have made The Blacklight, which oh. was their record that we still to this day are getting work off of, tempt into musical scores. And Blacklight is famous because that's got the huge train horn on the one song that everyone, that they still use as the sampler. And I still have Germans coming to me going, you know, how did you get that sample of that train horn? I'm like, that's not a sample. That's a train. That's a train. It's blowing Blowing, through, blowing through the Southwest. <laughs> yeah, they that's do. You know, on my microphones because yeah. I'm next to tracks. Uh, it's a combination of the music and the production with Calexico that you've done. Maybe because I'm a kid of the Southwest and I hear things like the train and I just identify with that but i mean calexico is fucking huge around the world 
with a lot of people. I yeah. mean, it's not like Taylor Swift. Well, they're huge. not a household name probably even here in the States, but I look at the festivals and stuff they're playing. It's massive. But for those that have not heard it, it to me, if, if uh, there is a sound of the Southwest, you have captured it. You have created it because of the space around it. And you, co- you combine the, the, the sonic characteristics that you've come up with to record John and Joey and all the guys that have come in and out of that band. Uh, it's just truly unique. I, maybe. I mean, it's to not me like it you is. set out to do it, right? I mean, it's all just every day something different and learning from that and saying, well, that was a mistake. I try not to do that again. Or that was really great. How do I repeat that? Right. So I alluded to the Dean Armstrong thing, right? Like valuable lesson, like, oh my God, you know, that's never going to happen to me again. Always be recording. Always be recording. And in fact, it did happen to me again later on down the road with Garth Hudson and Nico Case. I'm at this place now when someone's laying something down in a rehearsal, I hate it because that could be the best take. I'll actually stop because I don't want that to finish. I'll hate myself if they play a great solo right now and I didn't record it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'll hate that. I do so much stuff with recording where I, we're not recording. We're not recording. We're just getting levels. Sure. We're just, my joke now is I'm making sure the tape machine still works. We're just going to make sure the tape machine still works. So we're going to roll this one. That's what I just did with all of my Los, Los Coronas, my band from Madrid. We did it all the two inch again and they were getting all nervous. And I was like, don't worry about it. They go, we need to know when you're going to record. I'm like, nah, I'm just, we're just testing the tape deck for this run to make sure it's still working. Yeah. That's, uh, that is the most powerful moment when the band has just done something and then they say, oh man, too bad we didn't record and then that. You do have and then it. you go, I got it. Well, that's why Pro Tools with Quick Punch, man. I mean, come on, Quick Punch. The minute I get my students at school, the first thing I teach them is Quick Punch. Use this. Always have your tracks and record because you can get the last second and have the whole song. Quick Punch. Thank you, Pro Tools. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, there's a lot to be said for the modern tools you have to save your butt. I'm, I know I'm fast forwarding through through uh, what has been a long career and there's been a lot of interesting things along the way. So I want to ask you about some specific things. I want to okay. ask you some of the things I ask a lot of the other guests. The work-life balance thing and some of the, you, you're married uh, to a wonderful woman. You do not have kids, but along the way, you know, you've stumbled a few times with some business things oh, yeah. where- you know, <laughs> ultimately, you know, still stumbling. Yeah, stumbling and learning every day. What yeah, are still some, some free falls in the background? We're not talking about that. I'm going to be keep paying for for a while. But what what are some of the lessons that you've learned along the way that others can learn from? Dogged determination. Yeah, that's it. Don't quit. You can be at the lowest point in your life and think, "This is why am I doing this?" Blah blah blah. But then you sit back. And you realize that you're making a difference. And I can always go back to that moment when I was ready to chuck it in. Like, I was ready. Like, it was the 90s. Wave Lab wasn't doing well. 97 was a horrible year for us. Business was bad. All this pressure was coming at me from the landlord because he now was in love with this new dance troupe that was slowly encroaching on my space. I was having all these noise issues. It was really getting bad. The train traffic was increasing. It was miserable. And that was when Adam Selzer called me up to do an interview for this thing called Tape Op Magazine. And I was like, who are you? I'm this guy, Adam. I work with this guy, Larry Crane, this thing called Tape Op. I want to do an interview with you about the records you made in 97. So that was like Buckner and Calexico. Oh, yeah, Richard Buckner. And I was just because he was on MCA, right? Right. Barbara Manning. We had done a record with uh, 
the guy from Buffalo Tom, my name escapes me right now. Um, Tom. Tom, yeah. Um, sorry, Tom. Sorry, Tom, I can't remember your last name. Oh, God, it's over. I'm old now. I forget things. That moment that I realized, like, wait a minute. I'm not in this insular world. Here I am thinking I'm no one knows and I'm in this little place surrounded by these four walls and it's just in my bubble. But no, I actually touched people. These records people know about and they're talking about and they want to ask me questions about that. All right, don't give up. You made a difference. Don't stop now. And that's when I committed, really committed to keep going. And then, you know, because I'd already, 93, I had quit a job. Like I walked away from a salary and steady work and threw our entire marriage and life up in the air by removing financial security from our marriage. And if Karen was here right now, I'm sure she'd have a lot to say about that and how close we came to being split up. But she also decided that maybe she had put this much time and investment into my insanity and maybe it's worth hanging on to. And I point this out to her all the time. Like, you know, now we own a building, you know, we have vintage equipment that's tangible assets. If and when we decide to get out, we're, we're okay. This, this, this work we put into in the long run has, you know, has given back to us in a way we can't quantify, like when I had cancer and I reached out for help. And I, I want to touch on that, but I want, I'm, I'm going to ask you two questions, or, or two, a two-part question. What's your biggest fuck-up and what's your biggest victory? Whew. And when I say- I got to think about the fuck up because yeah. there's been a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> fuck up in terms of- Are we talking the studio or are we talking about businesses? St- studio. Studio studio, and studio business. I don't know that it's any one thing. I think it's just when I forget that I'm not more important than a musician and I get all full of myself and I get impatient with people and I forget that it's a struggle to- make music. Yeah. So I don't think it's one thing. I think it's being on guard for that all the time. And I just recently went through an episode where I got on my high horse with a guy and it was a big, ugly fight and I didn't need to have it. And a lot of it was created by me and my ego and I'm too good for you. And it's my fault because I shouldn't entertain the session in the first place. I should have right. had the filter out in the first place, but for whatever reason, I thought maybe I could help. And then I got in way deep and realized, oh, this is bad. So now you know, here I am, you know, I've got all this time underneath me and I'm almost duplicating my mistakes of when I started. Okay. Because that's where the business is right now. Cause I'm kind of like, well, I'm sort of casting out again for seeing what's out there. Cause I'm not really optimistic. The rock and roll thing is going to keep going. So I'm dabbling slightly in a little hip hop here and there. Cause this is what all my kids are doing. So I'm like, well, if I'm going to stay relevant, I might need to know how this all works. Right. Maybe I don't. But I should at least check it out. I, you know, I started teaching in 2007. Okay. At Scottsdale Community College. And honestly, I think if I wasn't teaching, I probably would have burned out. Probably would have quit this business. And teaching gives me the perspective to understand that I don't necessarily have to record to be in recording. I can mentor effectively, which gives me as much thrill as me doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the aha moments when I see my students understand some of these these things is way more rewarding than anything I've ever done. Yeah, to see them go out and succeed is really exciting to me. It's it's a big deal, you know, in a little community college where it's it's a low pressure program, and you know, I'm finding these little. You know, these kids are engaged. It's real easy for, you know, us middle-aged people to go, ah, oh, these kids these days. You know, that's it's real easy to do. You know, people did it to us. 
So I don't want to be that guy. You know what I mean? Like, I, I want to know. So I'm like, I'm going to learn Ableton now. I'm, you know, I'm starting to play. I'm playing with MIDI again. I'm going back to MIDI, dude. I'm going all the so way you're back. circling back. All the way back. Yeah, because just- I'm tired of all these kids acting like they know so much. I'm like, you don't know anything more than I knew when I was your age. Nothing's changed. It's just easier. What's the biggest victory, though? Oh, I would have to say the biggest victory is having enough of a reputation to do things like this and travel and, you know, go to Sweden to make a record with somebody, you know, that you've developed a relationship with by doing mixing. And then they bring you over to work with them and having a band that travels all the way from Madrid to come to you to make a record to, you know, have people who are saying we're willing to pay you to take you somewhere else. And it's not just about the studio because WaveLab is me. Sure. I can take WaveLab anywhere. Yeah. I don't need my studio to be WaveLab because it's my aesthetic. It's not the gear. It's how I operate. I think it comes from the fact that I'm very methodical as far as management goes and manage records are management. Okay. Making a record is a management, right? Okay. No different than when I ran my company, right? You got to soothe egos. You got to keep production moving. You got to get, remove obstacles. And we take music a lot of times and remove the limitations. So if you think about old recording, there was limitations. You got to cut tutti frutti in one hour. That's the budgeted time. Right. And then it became, here's two, here's three, here's four. Oh, pet sounds, you know, oh, Beatles, oh, Fleetwood Mac, oh, you know, now, oh, it takes months to make records. Why? Why does it take months to make records? Why? Indecision. I don't get it. I really don't get it. And we've totally changed the metric of record making because the industry has flipped on itself where the artist now has to make a record to tour. So the the songs have no maturity. They don't have anything worked out. They are fresh, raw things. And, you know, the first record's always easy, right? You've been playing those songs forever. Everyone knows those songs. You just go into the studio. We've been playing this live. We got the solo. We got the harmonies. The second record, well... It's like trying to make wine. It's like you if you age the wine and then eventually you release it, it tastes great. But then the next batch needs to get put out really quick and it doesn't have that time to age. So we've turned it upside down. The band has to make the record first to go tour. On tour, they sand off all the rough edges, figure out what people are going to do. You should be making that record after the tour when you're tighter than tight. Come into the studio, bang it out. No questions. Nobody is, there's no questions about who's supposed to play what. But we don't do that anymore because we have to now create because there's no time for the musician to actually write on the road because they're too busy touring trying to make a living. And the last thing they want to do is write songs in a bus. Despite all of us going, why don't you write songs in a bus? I got news for you. You get on a bus and tour and tell me how much you want to get up and write songs on the bus. You know what I mean? Like, it's ridiculous now. It's ridiculous. It really is. I want to talk about another vivid moment for me. Um... Uh, I will never forget you calling me to tell me that you went to the doctor and you had cancer. Ah. And, you know, of course now it's just so commonplace. uh, But at the time when you told me it it hadn't happened, I think it was one of the first times it had happened to me where a a, a dear friend had. Now you're like eight, right? Oh, it's just just all over the place. Fastest growing cancer in men our age, head and neck cancer caused by human papillomavirus. So you went through, you went through just total Uh, hell. Yeah. um, Full major chemotherapy, um, three, three, three week courses, 
where you know they just take you down to the ragged edge and then you rebound and they do it to you again. You that lost was in 2011. 2011. Um, that was my lost year, and it's really funny leading up to it because things were going great at the studio back then. Like we just finished that Amos Lee record in 2010, and uh, Perry, their manager, was actually bringing me a Jayhawks record to mix. So I was mixing this Jayhawks record when I should have been getting operated on. So I put all my pain and throat problems aside because I'm like, I got to mix this record. This is more important. I can live through this. But by the end of that record, I went to my ENT and I was like, you got to cut this thing out. We just thought it was an infected tonsil. Because you went to the dentist and they found it, right? Actually, it was found by um, an ear nose. My, my DO, who's my, said I needed to see this ENT and the ENT found it. Ear and nose Brad's, and throat. Brad, it was Brad, the dentist found it. Brad Brooks, the dentist found his. Mine was found by an ENT. I went oh, specifically. Oh, that's right. That's right. Because, right. But that's true. A lot of my friends who have been diagnosed, it was dentists who found it. Right. That's very true with this cancer. But my ENT was awesome. Old school guy with like, that's ear, nose, and throat for those who don't know. Um, he wore the mirror on his head. He was awesome. And I just saw him, in did fact. He, did great. he smoke? He should have. It was like a 70s office. Like right. avocado <laughs> furniture. Like, so cool. But this guy is like, He's, he's the man. Like, he just is like, the other day I just went to see him and he's like, do you mind if I reach in again? I'm like, no, dude, you can reach in my throat anytime you want because you found this thing. Yeah. So I'm like, and he's like, ah, oh, feels great. I'm like, awesome. So he's my, he's it now because insurance company's not gonna let me do anything. I can't get a CT scan or a PET or anything. I'm done. I'm done. You're healed. You're done. Your only line of defense now is one your nose and throat guy that you go see. So anytime I get a little twinge, I'm always like, ah, you know, like it's always in the back of your mind. You get a little sore throat, a little dryness. You're like, oh, maybe it's on the other side now. You know what I mean? Like you're not convinced it's gone. You never leave. Cancer will never leave you once you've had it ever. You live with it the rest of your life because it's always in the back of your mind that you had cancer. How did your experience with your cancer treatment and all the millions of thoughts that run through your head, how did it shape how you operate in life today with regards to music or your studio or anything? Well, what I'm perspective probably less patient did it give than you? I used to be since I cut you off. So you now know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm definitely, I kind of have a no bullshit mentality now. I don't want my time wasted anymore. Okay. I really don't. I don't have time for anybody to jerk. I don't want people. I just don't. You know what I mean? So I want to enjoy life more. I, I spend more time looking at sunrises and sunsets. I get out of my studio. I, I'm walking. I'm with my dogs. I'm trying to spend more time with my wife, which is really hard to do because of our two schedules. We're making a point of we need to take time. Let's get away. Let's, you know, let's. This, this idea that we're going to keep working till this moment that we get time together, is start, I'm starting to realize that's just stupid. Like, spend time now. You don't know if you have time later. Don't wait. If you've always wanted to take a trip, take that trip. Yeah. Just do it. Just do it. So it's hard because, you know, in a capitalist society, in the modern world, you know, money equates with security. But, you know, money is just something that runs through my fingers and gets me something else. I don't, I'm really bad with holding on to it because I just feel like everything else is just the means to an end. It's what good does it do sitting in a bank? It doesn't do me any good sitting in a bank and accumulating. I can't, I, that doesn't get me a microphone. That doesn't get me a compressor. It's sitting in a bank. You know, I need a microphone and a compressor. You spend money. You know, when you, you know, in this business, when you wake up and go, I can't work today without 
You're going to spend that money. You're going to put it on a credit card. You're going to get it. If you think for a mix that you need this particular thing and that's what you really want and you get it in your head, this is what the manufacturers all know, right? Convince you, you cannot live without this piece of equipment. You'll move heaven and earth until you get it. 500 series takes advantage of all our OCD, right? You buy a 500 <laughs> rack, you put in one module, you're not going to rest till they're filled. I know, yeah, that's the problem. Because you can't help it. You got one. It's I just, bugging you. I know, There's four I, empty slots, I right? know, yeah. Oh, you can buy a cover. Well, actually, those other, one, those other modules in there are, are on loan anyway, so I've got six slots. Yeah. And you're not going to, yeah. We talk a lot about that on the show. We talk about gear lust and, and, and weighing how much one is willing to go into debt for gear. Well, that's an important thing. And let's go back to the very first tape up because that's important. The one we went to in Steve Albini's keynote because that's maybe one of the other moments that I would say is very important in my life. When I did that tape up, I was, you know, you remember me? I was doing everything. I was like the host. I was AV. I was like the one man production show, right? Sure. So, and Steve's keynote was so great too. And- at the time, I really thought that I needed that. I needed a Neve board. I needed this stuff. I needed the trappings of a big studio for people to think I was worthy of their money. And I just remember Steve in that keynote talking about the Laffer curve. And he said something along these lines. He said, you know, if you own a studio and you own your equipment and you've got business and people are coming back to you and want to work with you, for God's sake, stop. In other words, don't spend more money. Because it's the Laffer curve and you're going to reach a certain point that the only way, only way to go is down. And you got to recognize when you're on a nice plateau. This was the key of his keynote. You got to recognize you're in a nice space and just ride with that. And that was life-changing for me because I went home and I no longer beat myself up that I only have a Soundcraft board. I don't care anymore. I could mix you on a Mackie, an Allen Heath, a Soundcraft, a Behringer, a Midas. I don't care in the box, out of the box, whatever. The concepts are the concepts. The equipment is just something that routes electricity. The better the circuit, yes, the better the electricity routes. But in the end, I'm dumbing it down to an MP3 that's the least amount of voltage known to mankind. So why am I so obsessed over this? You know what I mean? Yeah. So make it sound good. Make yeah. yourself happy. And, and it's funny you say that because I often think, okay, I, at one point I had a great little studio that was a, a co-op situation in Emeryville. My overhead was low. My rent was 500 bucks a month. I had continual business. And I, it's, it was part mistake to go move my studio to San Francisco. Uh, part of the allure was the Bill Putnam yeah, room. Yeah, but at the time it made a lot of sense. And I learned a lot, but... And you can't beat yourself up for it. You wouldn't be here now. You're right, because this podcast wouldn't exist because right. I, I, I got my ass kicked at that studio. But it does, you, you Listen, know, we, Matt, there's a lot of people who are, je I'm jealous of what you've got right now, okay? You're working from home and you're doing well. You're still in the business. People are still talking to you and you don't have to deal with, you know, the insanity of bands and recording. I don't have to, but I mean, I still go out and track. But Yeah, but you're not beholden to it. You're right. When you own a room and it's not moving, it's this is what I learned from plumbing. Your backhoe not digging, you're losing money. You don't buy a backhoe unless that son of a bitch is digging the dirt every day. So you don't go out and buy a vintage console unless someone's sitting at that every day. And I'm not gonna do that because these, room, these people I see that have spent all this money on all this equipment and their rooms are empty right now, 
How do you even afford the rent and the maintenance and all that that has to go with that? When people are like, whatever, I can now have a 1073 plug-in. I had a guest on Michael James who's worked with uh, Too Much Joy and New Radicals and Hole and L7. He said a similar thing. And he said, if you have a studio, it's like an airplane. Yep. It's got to be up in the air yep. with passengers. Yep. And if you buy, if, like you said, if you have a room or an Eve console or something like that, it should be in full operation. I mean, if you got more money than common sense and it's a vanity studio, hey, more power to you. Great. But build your beautiful room. And let me get it for a, a price so I can come use your equipment. But please maintain it. Sure. <laughs> you know what I right. mean? But I don't know. It's, it's, we're in such a different place now. I mean, big rooms are being shut down everywhere because the pressure of the, the, the cost of the square footage is just too great for the owners to turn down. I mean, why beat yourself against your head against the wall to try to turn a studio and, and make your mortgage when someone's willing to come in and pay five times the property value? Yeah. You would just, you'll jump, right? Yeah. Who wouldn't? Listen, when someone offers me over a million dollars for my building, I'm jumping. There's going to be no hesitation on my part. It'll be like, thank you very much. Come on, Karen. We're going around the world. Yeah. I'm putting everything in storage. I'll come back and figure out if I want to do this business. But right now, you and I are taking that trip we always wanted to take. And who knows if we'll even come back. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's it. I mean, why? I don't, I don't care about a legacy or I don't care about whatever. I put records out there. People know them. That's my legacy. Some will survive. Some won't. We'll see. Yeah. You know, if I'm lucky... After I'm dead, maybe someone will pull up a record and say, hey, that Schumacher guy was really good. <laughs> you know? Uh, I want to touch on maybe, a, I don't know if it's a sensitive subject or not, but you, you have, you've made a lot of friends along the way, like me, but you've also pissed off a lot of people. Oh, yeah. And I'm in the very odd position of... I mean, I'm curious I know, to know who I've pissed off that you know. About no, no. Well, I mean, so. I mean, I know, I know. Well, I'm not going to name names, but I know people that that uh, guy's an asshole that you don't like, and they don't like you. But I'm friends with both of you. What can you tell me about your not your experience, but what would you say about in regards to that comment? Like in you terms know, of I making just don't, relationships, I just don't sugarcoat things. That's my problem. You know, again, coming from a management background, running a construction company, sometimes it's just not nice. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to speak truth to power because you have to, because it's your job to say no. Okay. No is a very powerful word. And oftentimes in the recording business, we don't want to say it because we try to couch everything in niceties. So there's a lot of passive aggressiveness in music because no one will speak the truth. Mm -hmm. So we're basically super passive aggressive in everything we do. Auto-tune is a passive aggressive plugin. How so? Because you're tuning someone's vocals. You're basically saying you can't sing without saying you can't sing. The minute you go, oh, don't worry, I'll tune that. They can't sing. That is passive aggressive. <laughs> right? Everything we do is passive aggressive. I will sugarcoat it. Yeah, I'm not passive aggressive. I hate it. I'm aggressive and it rubs people wrong. Sorry, at least you know where I stand. Take it or leave it. Yeah. I don't care. What are you going to do? It's not my job to have everyone like me. God, I don't want to do that. That's a, oh boy, you'll go insane. Yeah. If you spend your whole life worrying about what other people think about you, you're not thinking about how you feel about yourself. You've got to be comfortable with who you are. I've sat long and hard and looked in my, in my heart and said, are you happy with who you are? And ultimately I say, yes, 
Yeah, yeah, I've made some mistakes, but whatever. And, you know, ultimately, you know, if I met that person, I would probably be like, hey, I'm sorry. It was the moment. I mean, things happen in moments. If you're going to hold on to the transgressions people did to you your whole life and hold on to them like little nuggets of anger, you are going to be a miserable person your whole life. And I see a lot of that. I think a lot of this country right now, that's where this is. I don't want to go political, but I think that's where we're at right now. Everyone's holding on to their anger and they use it against each other. And that's just silly. We're in a business that's supposed to be about creativity and about openness and love and warmth, which everyone wants to believe. But then you get in the studio and the egos get in the way and all of a sudden it's fighting. Well, yeah. fine. That's good. There should be fights. No one said records are supposed to be all love and honey. Great records have tension in them. Yeah. People aren't happy. You got to break some eggs to make a freaking omelet, whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm tired of this. Like we talked about Billy Anderson at that one thing earlier about that at the producer panel, who was the only one who wasn't sugarcoating being a producer. Yeah. I'm not going to mention names, but everyone's sitting up there acting like they've never, ever had a fight in the studio. That's right. total bull. Billy was on the show way early on, probably within the first 10 or 15 episodes. Real interesting uh, conversations. I love, I love talking to him. It's a fun guy. Well, I think we're done. Well, I really appreciate it. Oh, dude, thank you. It's been good to see you. And uh, for the audience, uh, Craig is here at my house because he's staying with me because he's on his way up to uh, Sausalito or Marin to make another Calexico record. We are making another record. Yeah, so he's stopping in. And I think I'm coming back to mix here. Great. Well, thanks, Craig. Thank you. All right. Craig Schumacher here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. True honor to have him on. Longtime friend, guy I really respect, um, guy who really uh, has been through a lot and goes out on a limb to try different things. So there it is. We are out of time. So, hey, as usual, let's thank Cliff Truesdell. Let's thank Cole Williams and Chuck Smith. And let's thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Lawton Audio, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, and Universal Audio. And thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.